Our sermon this morning comes from Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 18. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there. Uh, I think it's uh, important to have Scripture out in front of you as you, we study God's Word. As we know, we'll, we'll work our way through these verses as we do. I think one of the reasons why I think it's valuable for you not just to rely upon the screen as the verses are up there, is that as we continually refer to the Bible, you, you're continually reminded throughout the message that what you're hearing is God's Word. It is, it is God's holy word that is given to us. And so I encourage you to be reminded that what we're about to encounter is God through his word. And so I invite you to find your way to Philippians chapter 1 and beginning in the second part of verse 18. Hear now the word of God. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ... This will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word this morning, and we thank you that we can consider it, and we ask that you would help us to be conformed to the image of Christ through it, that your word would come out uh, of uh, from here into our hearts, and that it would uh, be powerful and effective in our lives. Father, we simply do not gather here that we might hear a good message or have our minds loaded with information, but we want to be transformed, we want to be changed, we want to be given the power to repent and to grow and to become more like Christ. We believe that Jesus has died for us and that Jesus is living today and is seated in heaven and is coming again as we have sung today. And so we come here to draw close to Christ, to be conformed formed to the likeness of our older brother, our great Redeemer, the Lord Jesus. So help us, please, we beg you, even now your people call for you to work in our hearts as we consider this morning um, perhaps a, a weighty text, a, a passage of Scripture that might challenge us deeply as it has for me over the last couple of weeks. And Father, we, we want to be challenged. We want to grow. We want our love to abound and our faith to grow strong and joy to be implanted in our heart. And so please help us even now we pray in Christ's name. Amen. To be or not to be, that is the question asked by Hamlet, the Danish prince when he faced the reality that his uncle had murdered his father and seduced his mother and married her and had seized for himself uh, the throne of Denmark. And so with little recourse for justice, Hamlet 
lets us in to his inner turmoil, this debate that he is having with himself as he contemplates suicide. And in doing so, he, he weighs the pros and the cons of life and death in order to help him reach his decision. He begins by considering life, saying, whether tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against a sea of troubles, and by opposing and them, to die, to sleep, no more, and by a sleep to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks. I don't know if you can hear how he considers life in this soliloquy that he, he seems to be repulsed by life. He, he considers that life is a life of outrageous fortune and a sea of troubles. It is a place of heartache and a thousand natural shocks, he says. Well, what then does he think of death? Well, he continues in his debate, saying, To die, to sleep, perchance to dream. Aye, there's the rub. For in that sleep of death, what dreams may come when we have shuffled off this mortal coil must give us pause. There's the respect that makes the calamity of life so long. He says, well, if I die, what comes with death? What dreams will there be? What happens when I get shuffled off this mortal coil? Death is the great unknown to Hamlet. And so he, he has this problem, doesn't he? He hates life and he fears death. And he is therefore left in this great and deep despair. Well, the Apostle Paul also must deal with troubles, much like Hamlet, a great hardship. As we've been working through uh, the, our, uh, this book of Philippians, we've seen that Paul has, has been in prison and he is waiting, perhaps his very own execution, waiting a, a trial where he'll stand before Caesar and, and here, does he go free? Is he acquitted? Or will he be executed? Will he be killed, perhaps beheaded or nailed to a cross? And, and so Paul, like Hamlet, ponders the pros and cons of this world of trouble or imminent death. He, he too, if you will, in this passage considers to be or not to be. We saw that Hamlet was somewhat left unable to choose because he was not sure which is the, 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 the lesser evil. Which one is going to be worse and which one will be not as worse? A miserable life or perhaps even worse death. And, and Paul seems unable to choose likewise. As you notice at the end of verse 22, he says... Yet which shall I choose? I, I cannot tell. My, I, I'm hard-pressed between the two. He says it's a difficult choice for me. But here's where the similarities end. Because for Paul, he's not choosing between two lesser evils, but between two greater goods. He says, well, I got life, and that sounds pretty great. Right? I really like life, and, and I want to keep living. But then there's death over here, and that's, that's even better. Because I get to go and to and be with Christ. And so Paul, Paul in fact, he, he announces this dilemma in verse 21. For me to live as any of us might relate more. To die is gain. So the question that for us as we consider this is to whom do you better relate? Though he's fictional, I think many of us might relate more to Hamlet's despair than to Paul's joy. And we think, I mean, I am, we're honest, and I, I've been working through this text for a number of weeks, and I'll, I'll be perfectly honest, this morning I'm going to preach to myself, I hope that's okay. Um, it has been doing a work in my life, and I'm, I'm kind of scared of the work that it's doing, to be perfectly honest, and 
and what God is, is showing me about myself. And, and, and we see this man who, who I think confuses us because we look at his life and we say, wait a second, Paul, your life is miserable. I mean, you're constantly being stoned and whipped and flogged and shipwrecked and now you've been in prison for four years and you're chained to a guard for the last four years and you haven't had any privacy. And we wouldn't look at that life and say, wow, that sounds great. I, I would like to live like that. And then we, we consider death and, and we think, well, I mean, death after all is death. And we don't, we don't think death... I mean, let's play a word association game. Let's try this. I say death, you say... <laughs> well, you actually did it. I didn't even think of we'd get a response. It's good. I, I, I bet most of us, when someone says death, the first thought in your mind is not gain. It's not, is it? It's probably loss, sadness, tragedy... We think death and we think not gain, but loss. And Paul says, wait a second, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. And we think, what what in the world are you talking about? I mean, this man has been hit one too many times in the head with a stone. He's gone cuckoo. This doesn't make sense. This is a common assault, our common sense. And yet, once again, we see Paul... Showing us what it's like to follow after Jesus. And we think, well, how can, how can the life that he lives in the midst of this trouble be considered good and then death be considered even better? And I think the only answer that we have to that question is that Paul lives for Jesus. He lives for Christ. He lives for the gospel. And therefore he can say, if I can live, I don't... The hardship that comes, that's okay because I'm going to live for the gospel. And if I die, you know what I get? Well, I, I get Jesus. And it's only when we live for Christ that we can say to live is Christ and to die is gain. We see Paul is devoted to Jesus. We see this very clearly in verse 20 as he says, As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage now as always... Christ. Here it is. This is what he wants to do. Here's the core of Paul's life, his chief ambition. Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. He wants to honor Christ. That's what he's living for. Maybe your translation, I think the King James says, magnify. Um, Most translations say, exalt. He wants to exalt Christ. He wants to enlarge Christ. He wants to make Christ bigger and seem greater. He's like the psalmist who says in Psalm 34, Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name together. He wants to make God look big and great and glorious and awesome and majestic. Not in the sense that God is small, mind you, but He's small in my heart and in your heart. And in your mind, and in my mind, and he's certainly small out there in Loudoun County and throughout America and around the world. And so Paul says, I want to live and even I want to die in order that I might make God look bigger. I, I appreciate the analogy. I think, I'm not sure who, who, where I heard it from, but, but someone says it, it's like magnifying God is like being a telescope. For instance, if, if you look out in the night sky and, and you look up and you try to find Jupiter, you, you, you may have difficulty just looking up and which one of those dots is Jupiter. Despite the fact that Jupiter is 300 times larger than the Earth. 300 Earths can fit in Jupiter. 
But, but if you took a telescope to it and you could see it for its immensity and how massive and glorious and big it is, you could see it 63 moons rotating around it, then you, you would gain a greater appreciation of what Jupiter is like. And Paul is saying, I want to magnify God because I want you all to be able to see what He's like. I don't want you to think He's just an irrelevant dot in the sky or just an object of faith and you go on your life without any regard to, to who He is and that you're, you're more concerned with the traffic jam or what's for dinner and, and rather than the, the majesty and the awesome glory of God. And I want to use my life however God would call me to use it in order that I might bring Him glory, that I might magnify Him in other people's lives. And this is the great call upon this man's life. I think it is the call upon all of our lives to bring God glory, to magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt His name to be a telescope that one another can see the majesty of our God. And so Paul says, this is what I want to do. It's my eager expectation and hope that now, as always, with full courage, Christ will be honored, exalted, magnified in my body. How's He going to do it? Two ways, he explains. Whether by life, end of verse 20, or by death. So let's consider that. How is it that you and I can magnify God first by our life? By the life He's given us. Now we, there, there's many, many ways, and we're not going to explore all those ways, but I think Paul gives us a couple ways to, to magnify God by our life. The first thing that he says, it teaches us, is that we ought not to minimize Him. That would be the opposite of magnifying Him. That, that would make him look small and insignificant and not important and not worthy of our affection and our glory, our worship and our delight. And so let's consider how we can avoid minimizing him. Look at verse 18, the very beginning of verse 18. He says, what then? Only that in every way, in, uh, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed and in that I rejoice. Now remember, we looked at that passage last week. That Paul's in prison. He's been in prison for four years. He says, I'm, uh, that's okay, don't worry about me. I'm preaching to the guard who's chained to me. And I, everyone knows about Jesus now because I'm telling them about Jesus. And he goes on and says, there's a bunch of people running around preaching Jesus because they hate me. And they're doing it out of rivalry and conceit. He says, don't worry about that. Uh, I don't care whether they hate me. What I care about is the progress of the gospel. I care that Jesus is preached. So he says, what then? Well, it doesn't matter whether they preach Jesus in pretense or in truth. Christ is proclaimed and in that I rejoice. So he looks at his very difficult present circumstances and says, I'm happy about it. I'm joyful about it. And then he transitions on and begins to consider the future. Read on with verse 18. Yes, and I will rejoice. That's future tense. So he rejoices about the present circumstances and then he considers his very uncertain future and he says, it's okay, I, I, I'm still rejoicing, whatever may come my way. And so we want to know, okay, Paul's in prison, he may be killed, why is it that he's thinking about the future and he says, I'm going to rejoice? Well, the answer is given in verse 19. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Now that, that verse is somewhat surprising, I think. Um, he says, I know this is going to turn out for my deliverance. Uh, surprising because he goes on to say, I may die or I may live. Right? And he's debating those two. He's not, not really sure how that's going to work out for him. You see that in the end of verse 20 as we've already seen. So what, so what does he mean by deliverance? Well, it's the same word. It's the word salvation in the Greek. Same word that we use to translate salvation. Um, but I don't think what he's saying is that, that I know this is going to turn out for my salvation. 
uh, I, I, sometimes it's translated, and I think this is the best translation, vindication. He says, I know that this is going to turn out for my vindication. That, that all this trial and all this hardship is going to, I'm going to eventually be, be vindicated. And not necessarily vindicated by Caesar. I don't think he's confident necessarily that Caesar is going to give him the not guilty verdict, the acquittal verdict. But vindicated by God. I think is what he's saying is that God is going to hold nothing against me when I go and stand on trial for Jesus. God is going to look at my life and my devotion to him. And he's going to see that I have not abandoned him. And when my own neck is on the line, that I am going to stay strong as he thinks about this upcoming trial as an opportunity to honor and to magnify Jesus. I think that's what he's getting at in verse 19 because of verse 20. As you read on, he says, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed. That's interesting, isn't it? He, he ties his vindication with this reality that I won't be ashamed. And I, I think what he's referring to again is being ashamed at trial. Being a disgrace to God. Denying Christ in order to save his life. And, and, and if you would do that, if Paul were to stand before Caesar and say, you know what, I got it all wrong. I don't really follow Jesus. I got a little carried away. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm with Zeus now or whatever it is. What, what is that? What will Caesar and all, those, all the else think about Paul's God? Your God is small. Your God is insignificant. You really don't love Him or you're not very devoted to Him. You're willing to abandon Him when opposition comes upon you. Paul says, I don't, I'm not going to be ashamed, he says. I, I will not. I will not reject Him. I will defend Him regardless of the consequences, which is why he says he needs courage. As you read on verse 20, but with full courage, now as always. He needs courage to stand for Christ, as you and I would, as we stood before a king or a judge who could take our life if we deny Christ. I think of our Australian brother right now in North Korea who was just arrested a number of days ago. Well, he need not courage when he stands before these North Korean men who want him to lie about his God. Paul says, I need courage, but I'm confident I'm not going to be ashamed. I'm not going to run from God in the midst of my trial. Now, what, the question is, why is Paul confident? Right? He says in verse 19, I know and he says in verse 20, it is my expectation. Where does he find this confidence? Well, look back at verse 19. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. He says, I am confident for two reasons. One, you're praying for me. He looks at the Philippians and says, I know that you're praying for me. I know that you're calling out to God on my behalf that I would stand strong. And he thinks that God is going to answer their prayers by pouring out the Spirit of God on Paul. That the Spirit would come and fill him and embolden him and give him courage and strength. It's not to say that Paul doesn't have the Spirit yet. Certainly he does. But we know the Bible teaches us there are times of testing in which the Spirit comes upon us in more fullness and more power and more confidence and boldness. We see this in Acts chapter 4 when, when Peter and John are before the high priest and, and the Bible tells us they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the Word of God. Or later in Acts 4, when they were all in the upper room praying after pers being persecuted. And the Bible tells us that the Christians there were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. Or in Acts 7, prior to his stoning, the Bible says, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and continued to proclaim the gospel to those who would kill him. You see, we, there are times when the Holy Spirit comes upon God's people in the times of testing to fill them with courage and strength and boldness. And Paul is... is 
is seeking the Holy Spirit. He wants that empowering. He wants the Holy Spirit to come upon him. By the way, not, not so that he can have emotional experience. And certainly not so that he could have wealth and health and all that other nonsense that we see on television. He wants the Holy Spirit to come upon him so that he won't run away from Jesus. That he will stand for Christ. That he will magnify Christ. And he's confident that he, he will come as he awaits his appeal. Because the Philippians are praying for him and God's going to answer him and empower him. And, and, and I think about all this. And, and I think about Paul's confidence in the prayers of God's people. And I'm reminded, and you should be reminded as well, that your, your Christian life is never meant to be lived in isolation. Paul is depending upon the prayers of his brothers and sisters in Christ in order to not abandon God, in order to stand firm with God. In fact, we've already seen Paul pray for them. Remember that a couple weeks ago? And I pray that your love may abound with uh, more and more with knowledge and depth of insight so that you may approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Paul's praying for their sanctification. Now they're praying for Paul's growth in godliness. Sanctification is a communal project. We need one another. We need the church. We too should pray for one another that we would stand firm for Christ when there are opportunities for our brothers and sisters to abandon Jesus at the office or in the neighborhood or at the ballpark and minimize and and uh, minimize their love and devotion to Jesus. We ought to pray for one another that we will be bold and courageous and be willing to bear the cost as we live a life that magnifies the one who has claimed us. And we see them praying for him in this. But that's not this. You know, we think about this persecution that Paul's experiencing. And, and you and I, most likely, God willing, are not going to stand before a judge and have to affirm Christ lest we die. Um, or, or, or we'll die, rather, if we do affirm Christ. And I was thinking, as I was studying this passage, how is it that you and I are more prone to minimize Christ? And the reality is, is I think we do that whenever we give ourselves over, over to sin. Whenever you and I choose to sin, we minimize the value of God in our lives. You're sinning because you think it offers you greater pleasure than fellowship with God, aren't you? Sin is what you do when you're not satisfied with God. I'm not satisfied with God, so I'm going to choose this sin over here. And so when we lust, we, we think, I'm going to find satisfaction in, in, in sex or, what, or whatever it might be. Or when we get bitterness, we find, I'm going to have satisfaction in anger. Or when we, we exalt ourselves, we say, I'm going to find satisfaction in myself. When we're filled with anxiety, we say, God is not worthy and trustworthy, and I'm, so I'm going to be anxious. Or when we're discontent, we want more and more and more. We're saying, God is not enough. And when we, we give ourselves over to this, it makes God look small. It minimizes Him. It's the opposite of exalting Him and magnifying Him. And I, I just want to... I think we ought to beware of what we communicate about God. It's how we follow Him. And I think Paul would help us to, to remember not to minimize Him as he seeks to honor Christ through his life. But, but that's one way that, that we avoid minimizing Him. The other way would be through fruitful labor. We see him begin to discuss this in verse 21 as he says, For to me to live is Christ... And to die is gain. So he says, my life is about Christ. He's a Christ-centered life. He has his Christ-magnifying life. And he goes on to explain what he means by that in verse 22. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. So he says, my life is Christ. And that life, that which is devoted to Christ, is, is going to be given to fruitful labor. It's a building each other up. 
to pouring out um, um, the, the, the gifts the Spirit has given me that I might minister to others. I want to labor for the glory of God. This is what life is about to Paul. It's not about growing up. It's not about getting an education. It's not simply about getting married and raising a family and having a rewarding career and then retiring. That's not what he understands life to be about. He says, my life is given that I might have fruitful labor in people's lives. And he continues on in verse 24 when he says, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. And so we see the labor that he wants to do. He wants to minister in the lives of the Philippians. He says, I think you need me. I think you need me to bear fruit in your life. And he goes on in verse 25 saying, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and your joy in the faith. Now, Paul, evidently, as he dialogues with himself, becomes convinced that he's going to be released from prison. I don't think this is some divine revelation. I still think he's not exactly sure, but he thinks that because of the needs that the Philippians have, that God is going to see he, that he can be released and go to them and bear ministry in their life. You notice this over in chapter 2 and verse 24. He says, I trust in the Lord shortly um, I myself will come also. He says, I, I plan to come to you once I find out what happens with me. He seems convinced that God is not done with him and that there is work left to be done. What is that work? Well, lead, read on in verse 25. He says, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. He says, I want to magnify God by helping your faith grow, helping you find joy in your faith. I want you to grow in your trust for God. I want you to lean upon Him, even in the midst of difficulties. I want you to find delight in Him. I want you to treasure Jesus. And I want to work in your life that you might trust Jesus more and that you might delight in Jesus more. He concludes this dialogue in verse 26 saying, So that in me you may have ample cause here to glory in Christ Jesus. Right? In me, through my ministry, I want you to glory in Jesus because of my coming to you again. I want to lead you to magnify God. I want you to find your joy and delight in God. I'm willing to expend my life for this fruitful labor, for the blessings of other people, that their, their lives may abound in their understanding and knowledge and, and joy they found in God. When Paul lives his life like this, he reminds me of a hero of mine named John Patton. And I've, I've shared a little bit about his life. He was a, a missionary uh, to the island of Tana. Um, and the missionary that was previously there was eaten by the people which he was there to bring the gospel to. It's an island inhabited with, with cannibals. And John Patton um, was convinced that God wanted him to go to the island of Tana um, shortly after the former missionaries were killed and, and consumed. And he gathered together a group of, of pastors and he said, this is my intention. I'm going to, to go to this place. And one of the older pastors, a man named Mr. Dixon, he rose up in the midst of them all and he warned Patton saying, you will be eaten by cannibals. In which uh, John Patton replied, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in, the great day of my, in that great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. So I'm going to live for Christ. 
Uh, he's played a call, placed a calling on my life. I'm going to live for him. I don't care what happens to me. I'm going to live for the labor, uh, the fruitful labor of the kingdom and the glory of God. And this is what Paul is doing. He's living to magnify for the Christ and to expand his kingdom, which is somewhat startling to us if we think about uh, what he's going through. I mean, he's in chains. He's suffering, isn't he? And he's even in the midst of his suffering, he's even in the midst of, of the threat of execution upon him. He is thinking about the Philippians, how I might bless you and minister in your life. And it's startling because we tend to think if you suffer, you're allowed to be self-focused, aren't you? Right? A little bit of suffering allows you to be self-preoccupied. You have hardship and difficulty in your life. You're, you get a free pass and you get to think just about yourself. And, and we'll all come around you and love and we'll think about you and we'll want to bless you and we'll want to help you. And, and you get to think about you. And yet here's Paul, who is being blessed by these Philippians, who are thinking of him. And yet when, when his own life is threatened, what is he concerned with? But others. He wants to be a blessing to them. He wants to live for the fame of Jesus. He wants to live for the cause of Christ. He wants to live for the advance of the gospel. He has been captured by the reality that, that he was a sinner in rebellion against God. And God has sent his son to this world. And he lived in perfect obedience to the law and to God. And they nailed him on a cross. They pinned him there. They tortured him until he died, the just for the unjust, in order that sinners like Paul and Stephen and you and, and and all of us might, if we bow our knee to Christ, have all our sins taken off us and put on Jesus and paid for on the cross of Calvary. And it's without Christ we have no hope. It is without Christ we are cut off from our God. We cannot find joy in our Maker. It is without Christ there is no hope in this life and in the next life. And yet how many Christians live their life thinking, I just want to watch TV. I, I just want to go backpacking. I just want to play golf. I just want to go shopping. That's what it is. And we get so preoccupied with what the world tells us we're supposed to live our life for. And this man who has no certain future in the midst of great suffering says, I am after one person, Jesus. I want to live for Jesus. I want to play games. I want to dabble with Jesus. I'm all in. I'm all in. It's Christ in me. This is what Christ has died for. I, th I think it's to claim us as his own. Paul understands that. I would encourage you to consider how you can give your life, spend your life in the fruitful labor for Christ to help others progress in their faith and their joy. Perhaps you can... Begin by seeking deep and real relationships with other brothers and sisters in Christ where you were able to confess the areas in which you struggle and pray for one another, hold each other accountable. Maybe you look for relationships with the lost and how you can minister to them. Maybe, I don't know if you saw the, the insert in the bulletin as you walked in this morning, but I believe God is in the, at the cusp of pushing this church outward and changing the culture of Hamilton Baptist Church where we increasingly understand that we exist to expand the kingdom of God out there amongst our neighbors and the nations. And we are forming these teams that we might explore how we can spend these resources to engage Hamilton Baptist Church in the cause of the advance of the gospel. Maybe you can pray and consider how you can be involved in this work. I want to magnify Christ in my life, Paul says. 
But then he goes on, he says, I want to magnify Christ even in my death, which is even more challenging to me. He says in verse 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He says death is gain. And we think, if we're honest, and we weren't familiar with this text, we think that's ridiculous. How can death be gain? I mean, we, we think, most of us, most people, at least in our land, think that well, life is about being comfortable and being entertained and having ease. And life is about sports and gardens and television and shopping. And, and for other people out there, well, life may be about, uh, about be eating and drinking and being merry or accumulating things. And we think, well, to die then is to lose all of that. It's to lose everything that we have living, given our life to accumulating and pursuing. And we think death in its very core is loss. It's a loss of everything that we're living for. And therefore, we live in a land in which we'll do everything to postpone death. Everything. No matter what quality of life that brings, just to push it off another week or push it off an, another month. And we think, how can, how can, how can life, how can death be gained? In fact, look at verse 23. He says, I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to be with Christ, for that is far better. Literally, much more better. And so the question is, how can death be gained? Well, my answer is that death can only be gained when what, when what you receive through death is greater than what you lose by it. What you get when you die is more valuable to you than all of that which death takes from you when you die. And so what is Paul planning to gain when he dies? Well, verse 23, my desire is to depart and be with, what is it? What is it? Christ. I want to be with Christ. And so for the Christian to die and to be with Christ, it's the same thing. When we die, we go and we be with Jesus. There's great mystery there, and I don't know exactly what it's going to look like and what it's going to be like once I die, but I know this one fact to be true. When I die, I shall be with Jesus. And I hope and I pray that the first thing I do once I close my eyes in mortality and open my eyes in eternity, the first face I'm going to see is the glorious, radiant, powerful, holy face of Jesus Christ. I think when God breathed life into the nostrils of Adam and he opened his eyes and there was his maker. And I trust when I am brought home, I shall open my eyes and see my Lord. The apostle said to be absent from the body is to be home with the Lord. And that's his expectation. He's going to go and be with Christ. Now what does Paul live for? Christ. For me to live is Christ. Therefore, to die is more Christ. It's gain. His dilemma is between Christ and Christ. Christ much, Christ more. Christ by faith, Christ by sight. And he says, if my life's about Christ, then death can only be one thing. Gain. Far better. Much more better. Now please hear what he's saying. He is not saying death is gain because it ends my suffering. Though it does, and we praise the Lord for that. But Paul is suffering. He's in prison. He's not saying, I want to die because I'm sick of prison. I'm sick of being stoned and whipped and flogged and all that. And I just want to end it all because it's too hard for me. That is not what he's saying. He's saying, my death is gained because it gets me to the one I'm living for, namely Jesus. In fact, as the Bible tells us in Revelation chapter 7, on that place we will serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. 
the Lamb will be in the center of the throne and will be their shepherd and will guide them to the springs of the water of life. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And so this is Paul's hope. By the way, uh, there's, a, there's a lot of books out there. I don't know if you've picked these up. I hope you haven't, actually. Um, a lot of books that are, people are buying about people who have died, gone to heaven, and then, come, I don't know, they took a little holiday up there, and then they came back, and then they, they wrote a book. Um, they made millions of dollars. Um, and there's a lot of them, and I would suggest to you as your pastor that you don't read any of them, um, except one. One. And it's, it's the book called Second Corinthians. Um, for in Second Corinthians, there is one man, the Bible tells us, that did go to heaven. His name is Paul. And God says, you are not permitted to speak about what you have seen here. And he comes back to this earth in order to keep him from being conceited about this incredible opportunity. He receives a thorn in the flesh, doesn't he, to humble him after this great exaltation. And so, so my point is, if anybody knows that life after death is better, it's the one person who actually went there and came back. Here's Paul. And he says it's far better. It's much more better. It is great gain. So I tell you this morning, death for the Christian is gain. It doesn't matter if you're 8 or 88. Death for the Christian is gain. It doesn't matter if you die at a long life in the quietness of your home or you die on a Florida interstate in a church van accident in great tragedy. I'm telling you, death for the Christian is always gain. It's always gain. And we should be able to proclaim that no matter how tragic the death may be, it is a gain for them. My question for you, is this how you see death? Is that how you understand it? I think most of us don't understand it this way. We may think we do, but we don't. the lives we live, it doesn't bear it out. I think if we were to say, complete the sentence, for me to live is what? And so many would say, well, if we're honest, it's, it's about work, family, accumulating things, or getting to retirement. And if it's any of those things, death will not be a gain for you. It won't be, because it's going to take those things from you. But, but if what you, you want is Christ, death will be gained for you. In fact, this is, so Paul's saying, I want to magnify Christ in my death. Verse 20, right? So how is it you magnify Christ in your death? You do so by seeing death as gain because it brings you Christ. You, you magnify Jesus in dying by saying, you can add up everything that death takes from me. So I don't know what stage you are in life, a driver's license, getting married, getting a college education, having a kid, raising a family, seeing them follow God, having a rewarding career, friends, physical pleasure, retirement, vacation, ease, golf, college basketball, whatever it is, you put it over here and that's all that death will take from you and over here you have Christ. And you step back and you look at that and you say, I want Christ. That is 10,000 times better than all of that. And if that's your heart attitude, then you will magnify Christ through death. I want Jesus. You can take it all. He's worth more to me than getting married and having kids and retiring and graduating college and all the rest. Jesus is worth more to me. As one person has said, Christ is most magnified in your death when you are so satisfied in Christ that losing everything and getting only Christ is called gain. 
That's this man's heart. It should be our heart as well. Death should be understood as gain to us. Which is not to say, please don't misunderstand me, it's not to say we're not supposed to enjoy life. I'm not saying life is supposed to be just misery and suffering and sacrifice. No, it's, life is wonderful. It gives us opportunities to bear fruit in each other's lives and live for Jesus. It'd be, but it would be like if you were, let's say you're the child of Bill Gates. Okay? We'll just fantasize for a moment here. Right? And poor Bill, um, he, he passes away. And he leaves, I don't know, it's $188 trillion to you. Okay, whatever it is. You get it all. But he puts it in a trust until you come of age. Sets it aside. And he, instead of you getting your full inheritance, you just get a stipend. Let's say you get 50000 a month. Right? You just, that's what you're going to get. Fifty grand a month, that's your stipend. I don't, can you live on that, I hope? And so, right, so you get 50000 a month, but you have $188 trillion coming to you. Now, do you, do you like the stipend? Oh, yeah. You love the stipend. You are so thankful for it. But what do you want? You want your inheritance. That's what you long for. And see, we're, we're, living in the, we're living off the stipend right now. It's great. It's wonderful. We praise God for it. But man, I want my inheritance. I want it all. I want Christ. I want to be... I love this world. We ought to love this world. But we ought to want Christ. Let me give you two examples of what this looks like, magnifying Christ in your death. One is by the first American overseas missionary, Adoniram Judson, had life very like, much like Paul, massive suffering, abundant fruitfulness. He talked after 38 years of living in Burma, saying, I am not tired or weary of my work, neither am I weary of the world. Yet, when Christ calls me home, I shall go with the gladness of a boy bounding away from school. I like this. I'm, I, this is a good life. I like this life. But when he calls me home, I am going skipping. I, I am, I'm ready to go, he says. That magnifies Christ in death, doesn't it? Let me give you another example that is not so cheerful. This is an example of what it's like when you face death and tragedy. This is a story, interesting enough, from a Ukrainian boy he recounts the last conversation he had with his father when Ukraine was under communist rule. He said, I remember it like it was yesterday. My father put his arm around me and my sister and my brother and guided us into the kitchen to sit around the table where he could talk with us. My mama was crying, so I knew something was wrong. Papa didn't look at her because he was talking directly to us. He said, children... You know that I am the pastor of our church. That is what God has called me to do, to tell others about him. I have learned that the communist authorities will come tomorrow to arrest me. They will put me in prison because they want me to stop preaching about Jesus. But I cannot stop doing. I must obey God. And so I will miss you very much. But I trust that God will watch over you while I am gone. He then hugged each one of us. And finally he said... All around this part of the country, the authorities are rounding up followers of Jesus and demanding that they deny their faith. Sometimes when they refuse, the authorities will line up whole families and hang them by the neck until they are dead. I don't want that to happen to you. I don't want that to happen to our family. So I am praying that once they put me in prison, they will leave you and your mother alone. However, and here he paused, 
and made eye contact with each of us. If I am in prison and hear that my wife and my children have been hung to death rather than deny Jesus, I will be the most proud man in that prison. And my question for you, is this how Christians are supposed to live? Is this what it means to be so confident in the resurrection, so desirous of Jesus, that we will be willing to give up whatever he calls us to give up? If we do, I think that magnifies him. I think that exalts him. I think this man exalted Jesus in the life of his children as he was dragged off to prison, never to see them again. And so the question that this text raises for me, and I know I asked it last week, and I, I can't get away from it because it is echoing in my mind, is what are you living for? What are you living for? What are you giving yourself to? Because this world holds out to you countless Things to live for, doesn't it? We live in a world that says the more stuff you have, the better your life. And the better stuff you have, the better your life. And if it's not stuff, it might be leisure or ease or comfort. And it's all supposed to enhance our life. And this attitude has worked its way into the American church. This is American-style Christianity. I live for stuff and I sprinkle Jesus on top. And this is not biblical Christianity. He did not die on the cross so that you and I can live for things. He did not die on the cross so we can have an easy, comfortable life. He died on the cross to pay for your sin, to claim you as His own, that you might live and die for Him. That you might, even, that you might magnify Him in your life. This is what we are called to do. And there is great work, as I mentioned, in my own art. I trust there is in yours. But this is the calling upon us. This is what it means to follow Jesus. To give Him everything. And if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, I can understand that none of this really makes any sense to you. And you're thinking, what in the world is this crazy man talking about? And I, I understand that. I just wouldn't make any sense to me if it weren't for what God has done in my life. But I, I think at very least this raises questions for you, doesn't it? Doesn't this raise the question, what, what are you living for? And, 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 and whatever that is, is it satisfying? Is it giving you what it promised it would give you? Or are you left wanting more and more and more? And, and what's going to happen when you die? Is, are you going to have it anymore? Or what's going to happen to you when you die? Have you ever even thought about that? I mean, is that an important question to consider? It's going to happen to you. you. I know you are aware of that. Why is it that we all know we're going to die, but we never actually stop to think about what happens? We never, we never stop and get prepared for that. And for so many, I think it's like we're all like Hamlet. It's all some mystery to us. What dreams may come, we don't know. Well, I, I think I do know. Not because I'm brilliant, but because God's Word has told me. And I would love, if, if you're here this morning, and maybe these, you think it would be wise to pursue these questions, that you and I could get a cup of coffee sometime this week. You email me, and we could get together. and We just talk. Think about these things. See what God's Word. Two billion people think this is God's Word. Let's, let's just talk about it. And I think it challenges us. These are questions that I think we would do well to ask. There are questions that have been asked by people for thousands of years. One of them was a young man in the 16th century. As he approached the great Philip Denary. 
Daenerys himself, who had wrestled with these questions, had at this time renounced all the hereditary honors of being a nobility in Florence. And there he had given himself to full-time vocational ministry. And, and up came this young man who was accepted into law school because of the university's great reputation. And he came up to Philip and he began to lay out his plans and explain that he's going to you know, use all his labors to get through his studies as soon as possible. And, and he was just filled with great delight at the future. And Philip waited for his conclusion with, with patience. And then he said to him, Well, what are you going to do? When your course of studies are done, what then do you mean to do? And the boy responded, well, then I shall take my doctor's degree. And then what? Asked Philip. And then, continued the youth, I'll catch people's notice by my eloquence, my zeal, my learning, my acuteness, and shall gain a great reputation. And then, repeated Philip. And then, replied the youth, Why, there can't be any question. I shall be promoted to some high office or other. Besides, I shall make money and grow rich. And then, repeated Philip, and then I shall be comfortably and honorably situated in wealth and dignity. And then, he asked, well, and then, then then I shall die. And it's at this that Philip raised his voice and said, And what then? And whereupon the young man made no answer, but cast down his head and went away. The last and then had like lightning pierced his soul, and he could not get rid of it. Soon after, he forsook the law and gave himself to the ministry of Christ and spent the remainder of his days in godly works and words. The meaning is not that we all quit our jobs and we all become pastors. The meaning is that we are called by Christ, bought by Christ, to live for His glory and even to die for it. Father in heaven, we thank You for um, this time to consider Your Word. And as I shared with my brothers and sisters in Christ, it has done a good work in my life and continues to, to perform the, the surgery that I need. Pray, Father, for us. I pray that that we would live in a way that magnifies Jesus, that we wouldn't follow Jesus out of duty, but out of preference, that we would prefer Jesus, find our delight in Him, our great joy. Please help us to share that with one another and share that with the world. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.